we might not need to bother with any of these blade inspections because vertical axis wind turbines are coming back. Did you hear the news? So if not, let me tell you. Let me tell you. So, please, please. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news, and policy. Welcome back to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, wide range of topics here in the new year. First, we're going to talk about GE. They've had a blade break uh, in Germany, and there's some investigation underway. We'll talk about the implications and you know, speculate a little bit about what might have happened. We're going to talk about vertical axis wind turbines. Rosemary, you're excited, I know. Uh, they continue to pop up and continue to have support, though perhaps maybe... Um, a little bit unfounded. We'll talk about some uh, ocean hydro storage batteries, microplastics shedding from wind turbine blades, which is an interesting topic that we haven't discussed yet. Uh, we'll talk about some ways to repurpose blades, uh, an interesting um, method of dismantling an old farm, which is being done in North Dakota currently, or at least proposed. We'll talk about a little bit of the offshore uh, wind environment here in the U.S., uh, including some marine life uh, news on in the Virginia offshore wind farm and a uh, vineyard wind lawsuit and what the implications therein might be. Uh, before we get going, be sure to subscribe to Uptime Tech News. It's our weekly newsletter. You'll find that in the description links below, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel. Uh, she keep, continues to put out great content, has great guests, so be sure to subscribe there as well. So let's get kicked off today with this blade breakage. Uh, Rosemary, you're our resident blade expert. Um, so this was a GE, I think from their Cypress line of 5.3 megawatt. Is that right? Yeah, that's what I've seen. And so that's the, that's the two piece blade, the, where the tip comes separate from the, oh. the root and it's assembled on site. So that's the, the exciting thing about that turbine. But when you look at the photos, I think that the, it, it broke quite close to the root, the, in the split yeah, blade I was design. Just ask you that. Yeah, mm. it's only like the outer. I can't remember the exact dimensions, but I think it's like 12 meters, um, definitely less than 20 meters from the tip that is actually separated. And they do that because the, the loads at the blade root are just so large that, um, you know, you, you really don't want to be putting, putting a split, <laughs> a split in there and having a, a joint that has to carry that, um, that entire load. So yeah, I don't think it's anything to do with the split blade, the reason why it broke. Alan, what's your take on this? This is out of the ordinary. Obviously, you got a bunch of press. Of course, every wind turbine blade breakage seems to get pressed, but why does this one seem noteworthy to you? I think it's the second blade they've had break like this, and uh, I haven't seen the the uh, review of the first blade breakage, but this one seems to be very similarly. At least that's the, the discussions online have been focused around, well, this is number two, not number one. And that it kind of gets you into two areas real quickly. And Rosemary, correct me if I go off base here, but either they have some sort of design issue, which would be really hard to believe at this point, that, or that they have a manufacturing issue, which definitely could be uh, a shipping issue where it's getting loaded unusually towards the hub, or they're having some weird lightning strike problem. Uh, it, all of those seem like possibilities right now. The shipping one, I, you know, we, we've watched some shipping damage happened to yeah, get hit by a train yeah you see any train any train damage on this one <laughs> yeah we well, see some really bad bad examples of 
blade damage while shipping. Yeah, there's a lot of shipping rash or damage that happens during shipping, but something that happens down towards the hub would be really unusual because Rosemary's right. The, the loads that area can carry are substantial. So you're talking about a, a massive structural failure here. And I, I can't imagine, and, and Rosemary, you would know for sure, but what what happens after a blade has that sort of damage? What is what is the what would GE typically do to go out and check out and inspect the blade? And what would be their sort of next sort of actions to to look at it? You mean it once the the blade is folded in half, like in, yeah, <laughs> in would, this would, situation? Well, they would they would take it down, I assume, but someone's going to do a, a inspection of the blade to see what the root cause analysis as part of root cause analysis, what was driving that failure, right? Isn't that the typical response? Yeah. And so, I mean, the first thing to do is to really as quickly as possible, try and figure out if it's a a one, one off or if it's a systematic thing, because, you know, if you uh, find out that all of your, your whole population of this type of blade is affected, then obviously there's a lot of wind farms around the world that would need to be paused while you figure out the solution. Mm. Um, a lot of extremely unhappy customers. So they're going to want to, they're going to want to figure out really, really quickly if they need to go down that path. And uh, I mean, it's not, it's not a brand new blade, right? They have got some experience. So I, I think that it's not going to be, it's not going to turn out to be some sort of really basic design problem. Um, yeah, I, I guess it's hard to say if we've had two blade failures, I actually haven't seen pictures of the first one that you're talking about. So I don't know how similar it looks Two could, definitely be a coincidence even if they are in sure. a, a similar place but it definitely starts to make people want to you know dig in more carefully to see if this is a systematic problem um and yeah it could have been any of the things you mentioned and then i'll also add that it could be an impact damage either um you know while it was up tower it, it could be hit by a drone or a particularly uh, i don't know um, damaging bird or sometimes they get shot or, you know, like it could be anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, or something that happened in transport, like you said, not just, um, you know, like a damage from the loading on the, on the ship, which would, would be a kind of design problem, but people drive into things with forklifts and, um, <laughs> you, yeah. you know, like stuff, <laughs> stuff happens and it doesn't always get, get caught. I mean, you do when blades arrive on site, and then the customer is going to do an inspection while it's on the ground to make sure that they look okay. But it it can be easy to to miss something. Um, sure. You know the blades are really really big, really long. Um, I think there's only a couple of turbines on this site, so they didn't have so many to look at. But often yeah, you've got just hundreds. Two. So. Yeah, just two. Yeah. yeah. There's a community so, farm. Let's let's hope that they they check them over properly. But um, yeah, there's any any number of things that. That could be wrong, but I mean, if it if it goes on and we see more like this, then I'd probably be looking closely into what what factory that these blades came from and whether they've got some mix up with work instructions. You know, it's easy to um, use an old work instruction and um, place apply slightly wrong or something like that. That's that's a pretty common root cause analysis that I see when you see this kind of problem happening systematically, but. At this point, I expect that they assume that it's a one-off or a two-off two that happen to look similar. 
Uh, I think everyone's probably looking into it, but hoping, <laughs> hoping really hard that it's not going to turn out to be a, a systematic error because that's su- such a painful process. Well, Rosemary, when the, you raised a good question about the, the ply layup for each of these blades. And because you're making so many blades day after day after day, you kind of lose track, right? It'd be easy to misapply or miss a, to, to lay up a ply incorrectly. How do they prevent that in the factory? Are there ways to do that? Yeah, they um, mostly they're using a lot of laser guidelines. So they'll have, um, you know, the the blades are predominantly made by hand, but for the the main structural um, plies, then they're going to have a basically a, a robot that's holding a big roll of fabric of of glass or carbon fiber fabric, and um, and that will yeah help to get it in the right place. And then there's also going to be laser guidelines that are telling you where every they'll put a line down where the ply is supposed to start and stop um so i mean they really go to great lengths to make sure it happens exactly the same way every time and they, they do achieve it with i mean i don't know another um product that's so handmade that has such consistent quality i think yeah, that it's really true. impressive what they're what they're able to do where you see problems it's because you, uh, like maybe a, a process changed if they had a slight design change where they they moved something and so um but maybe a, a crew was using a paper instruction or something and didn't change over and um, yeah. so they've got the new materials but using the old process that's yeah. that's usually where you see problems or maybe um maybe a, a repair a, a problem with repairs because all blades have defects when they're made sure. and they have to be repaired in the factory sometimes um that they might use an old repair method and it'll be something like that. Well, Rosemary, you're going to be excited about this. Moving on, we might not need to bother with any of these blade inspections because vertical axis wind turbines are coming back. Did you hear the news? So if not, let me tell you. Let me tell you. So, please, please. The Department of Energy, their, their arm, um, the advanced, what do we got here? ARPA, ARPA-E, which is the Advanced uh, Research Projects Agency-Energy, they have funded uh, the University of Texas at Dallas to, you know, essentially build this uh, higher risk, higher payoff floating offshore wind um, project. So they're doing this. It's going to be a vertical axis uh, floating turbine. And we're maybe going to see it in 2022. So obviously, like you've said, this the commercial viability is tough which is why the Department of Energy is having to fund this because private investors you know, don't really want to put their money where it's so unproven and difficult. But having read this, um, this article, what do you think about the idea of this finally coming to life, like a pretty large-scale offshore vertical axis turbine? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And I, uh, last time I checked vertical axis wind turbines also have blades. So I don't know if we're going to get away from blade problems. <laughs> uh, and- technicalities, <laughs> whatever. All right. Well, it looks like an onion and- instead of, you know, um, like an egg beater. Yeah. sunflower. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and I mean, last time, it, it, this isn't the first time that um, vertical axis wind turbines have been really tried properly. Um, definitely, especially in, in the US in the 90s, especially, they were, the government was funding a lot of research that people tried very hard. And there's actually a really great report from, um, I don't know how you say, is it Sandia or Sandia? Sandia. The, the US research, yeah, Sandia, the research lab have a really great report that says everything that they learned from all of the um, attempts that they made with 
vertical axis wind turbines. So anybody who um, has <laughs> wants to try to commercialize this should take a look at that because you can learn from their mistakes and one of the oh, from their challenges. And one of their biggest challenges was actually blade loading because the, um, the on a horizontal axis wind turbine the the blades are kind of they're they're doing something quite similar to an aeroplane wing you know it's it's always flying at the correct angle into the wind all the way along it basically and um you try and keep that as as steady as possible but on a vertical axis wind turbine when they're going you know away from the wind then they're um flying in one direction and then when they're coming back towards the wind it's almost like an aeroplane flying upside down so i mean you i mean it's not almost like that it's pretty much exactly (laughs) exactly like that so i mean an aeroplane can fly upside down, um, so it's not like it's physically impossible, but it's it's really different loading. Um, and so one of the most common early failures was um, from the, the blades failing from these just constantly changing loads and a lot of stall loads, which are really violent, turbulent, um, cause a lot of fatigue problems. So um, that that hasn't changed. The loading environment hasn't changed so much. They'll be doing things to try and um, prevent these sudden changes in in loads. So you can do things by you know like um, actively controlling the angle of attack of the blades throughout the the cycle of revolution, so that it's it's not going to suddenly go into stall um, and to make it a bit more gentle. And then the other big development that's happened since the nineties is with materials. So composite materials, are, um, you know, so much more advanced, obviously, than um, the aluminium materials that they were using mostly back then um, easier to design so that fatigue isn't a problem um, and I think that the design that um, the specific design we're talking about here is that Darius design where you can actually have basically the whole blade in tension um, which is really you know well suited to composite materials so I uh, yeah I think it's it's worth worth another go all the problems that they they had back in the the day are are solvable with good engineering um this doe program it's not the only they're not the only people trying to push vertical axis wind turbines there's actually a few companies some private companies c12 is one that's doing vertical axis offshore and then there's um some larger onshore ones as well agile so i mean i'm interested to see how it turns out i I always think it's weird when people want to commercialize a technology offshore first um, because, you know, it's like what you see with with wave energy, how much it's struggled compared to wind energy, um, horizontal axis wind turbines. They matured their design onshore, had, you know, like thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours of operating experience onshore, worked through all their problems in a way where, you know, an environment where it's cheap and easy to get up and, and fix something when it breaks Wave energy, most of the companies that have failed, it's been because they, they can't afford to, um, you know, iterate a lot of times because it's so expensive to get out and fix a, um, fix a device once it's in the ocean. So, I mean, if I, even if I wanted to end up offshore with a vertical axis wind turbine, I, I really think it's much more likely that whoever succeeds in doing that is going to succeed onshore first and then take it offshore. But that's, that's a lot of companies are choosing not to do that. So, you know, obviously there's differing opinions out there. Alan, have you seen the megawatt size, the output of this one from UT? I've scoured and I couldn't find it, what it was. No, I've only seen sort of general descriptions of what they intend to do. And the, the cost savings, and this is where the, 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 the total cost installation comes in is that they think they can save a bunch of money on the, the floating part or 
mounting it to the, the, the ocean floor just because of the way the weight is distributed and the way uh, the loads are distributed. So they're looking to save not so much on the turbine itself, but just on the, on the way to get it out into the Gulf of Mexico in this case, which is really interesting because it, it, it's, it's not just the cost of the turbine, it's the cost of everything, right? You're going to pay for all of, all this stuff. And cutting one of those major expenses down considerably and probably in the floating piece they can, maybe it makes sense to do vertical. But there's a, as Rosemary said, there's a long way to go here. Hmm. And also, I mean, the reason why they expect the um, the floating structure to be easier is because the, the tower is shorter, the um, center of gravity is lower. And uh, I mean, I've seen a lot of articles that say, oh, they don't need this tall tower. But I mean, horizontal axis turbines don't need a large tower either, but you put a big tower on so that you can get to the good winds. Um, it's less of an effect off- offshore. So I guess vertical axes have um, less of a handicap offshore for that reason but it's kind of you know it's a double-edged sword it's an advantage and a disadvantage that they have the the shorter tower yeah of course this is still going to be really tall it's going to be 700 feet tall was their uh their floating concept well that's the actual size of it when it actually gets offshore we'll see but um still not not small but yeah like you said the center of gravity is very different well, we will. Uh, I mean, Rosemary, you've been betting with everyone recently. I mean, do you want to wait? You want to wager with someone about this? You want to throw another hundred dollars at this? <laughs> I've got no one to to bet with. I don't think Alan's going to take the other side of that that no. bet that he he thinks no, that no. Um, vertical axis is is going anywhere. I won't rule it out though. I think it's um, similar to like multi rotors of any kind. And another little snippet that um, these articles about vertical access tend to raise is that you can um, have them operate more efficiently. If you put them in in pairs, Um, you can have them uh, that they affect each other in a kind of a positive way. And there is some research that that's early stage research that suggests that it's just two-dimensional um, CFD. So, you know, it's a long way from being a verified effect. But you have the same effect with horizontal axis wind turbines that when you put them in, in pairs and as long as you can control that so that they, you know, they all as a group turn to face the wind because it's important, you know, how they're located relative to each other and relative to the wind. As long as you can control that, then you can get some like boosting effect um, and get some structures that are, you know, nicer to make floatable. So I, I do think that we're probably going to not just see turbines, um, offshore turbines continue to get huger and huger in the exact same kind of concept as what we've got. And I wouldn't rule out horizontal. I mean, sorry, I wouldn't rule out vertical access from, you know, being, being part of that. So. There's nothing, it's not like a scam, you know, it's not a perpetual motion scam or something. These, these things do work. It's real, real engineering, real aerodynamics and, um, real structural, um, design considerations. So yeah, I, I think it's worth researching as well. Um, but I wouldn't invest in a company that was, <laughs> that was uh, commercializing a, a, an offshore, um, vertical axis wind turbine because I think the odds are, are low, but you know, the odds of any individual technology making it are probably low. So yeah, good on them. <laughs> okay, well, no wager this week, I suppose, but we'll <laughs> see. We'll see. That's all right. Thank you for your apology. I appreciate it. Uh, moving on, <laughs> there's a new uh, potential ocean battery. Uh, really interesting concept. Alan, do you want to explain how this works? This yeah, is an interesting article, but it sounds like there's a bladder and there's turbines and there's concrete. It's <laughs> What do you got? 
Yeah, so the concept is uh, on the ocean floor around where turbines are located, on those off-peak times, you want to store energy, or if you have excess energy you want to store, you can store it in essentially by pumping water uh, through a system. So it's sort of like a, a hydro storage. So on the surface of the floor of the ocean, you got these inflatable bags. Uh, you have a basically a pump tower that that penetrates down into the ocean floor a good bit. It looks like 20 feet or 30 feet down. And then you also bury in the ocean floor these uh, solid tanks. And so what you do is you fill those tanks that are under the seafloor uh, with, with water. And then as you have excess energy, you pump that water into the bags that are sitting on the seafloor. And when you want to reclaim that energy, the weight of the water from the ocean pushing on those bags will force the water through electric generator, which will create electricity. So it's sort of a localized way of storing energy mechanically in a hydro sense, uh, in, a, in like a hydro dam sense, rather than storing it in a, in a physical battery. Uh, so the concept is interesting. The The piece I really couldn't figure out was how are you going to bury tanks in the bottom of the ocean floor consistently? Because I'm not sure we have a lot of knowledge uh, in places like in the United States what that seafloor even looks like, and have are we going to be able to to bury that technology into the into the floor? And also, the, the you know the second piece of it is just how reliable is it? That's what everybody's going to be concerned about. If I do do the system and I can do the engineering and I can bury these canisters underneath the the seabed, how long will it last? Is it going to last as long as the turbines? Maybe longer? Maybe shorter? Don't know. So, but you, you know, my one of my 2022 predictions was offshore energy storage, and I this is one of those concepts. Uh, so I, I'm still sticking to that 2022 prediction, but I don't. I'm not sure this is the 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 right means yet. But it, it tells you there's a lot of activity in energy storage offshore. And Rosemary, it, do, you, do you see how this could be one of those energy storage means? Yeah, I mean, it looks, it looks interesting. I'm sure it could, could work. It's got that same drawback that I'm always harping on about that, you know, like it's a, a new complicated thing that's under, underwater in the ocean offshore a long way. So it's just going to be expensive to commercialize. If, if I had to put energy storage, I think it's a good idea to put uh, associated energy storage with, um, you know, with all kinds of variable renewables as the, the cost of that storage is, you know, coming down. I'm a hundred percent sure that if I was looking at this project and just looking at the out, outcome, I would put a bank of lithium ion batteries on shore, you know, um, <laughs> right. Just, you know, near the, near the offtake. Um, I'm sure that would be cheaper, but you know, that's not the way that you develop new, better solutions for the future. So I, th I think we're in that time with, um, energy storage where all of the, the crazy ideas are being, being tried and, um, yeah, I think this one, it sounds, it's like a lot like a combination of a bunch of different existing things like the, yeah, pumped hydro, compressed air. There's a buoyancy storage I've seen as well, um, raised as a possibility for offshore wind where you've got like a big, like a beach ball and you, you pull it down. Um, and then, yeah. you know, let it release its energy when you let it raise. It, it's kind of similar to, to all those. Um, yeah. I, I guess it's just a matter of waiting to see how things settle in a, a year or two because I don't think we can just use lithium-ion batteries for, for everything over the whole next decade. You know, there's, um, it's going to be too much. So I, I think it is worth pursuing ideas like this. Well, it won a uh, Best of Innovation Award at the CES 2022, which just happened like a week ago. 
Um, but like you said, I mean, innovation is one thing. Commercialization is another. Uh, as I look at it, I wonder, A, does this look like a whoopee cushion? Could they color it pink <laughs> just, just because? That would be fun. But B... How big, like, what kind of material would this bladder be made out of? Like, could it yeah. really take like a million cycles being really hot, really, or just being really cold down there and still be flexible? Um, how often could it inflate and deflate without starting to crack? Like, rubber cracks over time, right? Yeah. Um, it's very similar so, to, it just seems like there could be a lot of issues. I don't know. It's very similar to what, uh, Glenn Ryan was talking about with Bombora, which was a, a wave system, which had a, a basically a bladder as, as the tides came in and out, it pushed down on the bladder and it, it would uh, move water through a pump sort of thing or air through a pump uh, and create electricity. So it's very similar to what has already been done and is going on in a similar place. So the technology isn't that far off, I don't think. We should ask Glenn for sure. He would know. But it would be really interesting to get his, get his two cents on this design. I was just thinking the same thing, that those design teams should talk. Because I don't think that, I mean, the Bombora is also still at a demonstration kind of stage. So further ahead than than what is, seems like it's just an idea at this point. Um, so I'm sure they could, startup, they, could, yeah. they could learn. But I, I think, um, yeah, we've got... We've got a way to go before we find out all the problems with the with the design and how easy they are to solve. So moving on, let's talk about microplastics. Uh, obviously, one of the things that we don't talk about that much is how much of our car tires are in the air and then thus in our lungs. Um, all these little bits of particulate um, from any sort of like plastic or rubber you know, that's actively in use in the environment seems to eventually erode off, ends up in either the waterways or the air. And this is also happening with wind turbine blades. So we know that with leading edge erosion, um, you know, the edges are getting worn off and that that has to go somewhere, right? So when it's getting hit by ice or, or rain and it flecks off, even just the sand in the air, um, those little chips of the composite, the paint, the plastic, whatever, are off in the air. So Alan, this article from... Uh, it's from Shetland News, which is overseas in the UK. Um, there, I guess there's a dispute about how much microplastic is actually being shed off these blades and that conflicting numbers from research and then from manufacturers um, are just, they seem to be way off. Yeah, they do. Uh, it's, it really depends on who the manufacturer of the blade is and the technology in which they apply to the blade. Uh, some blades seem to be a lot more erosion tolerant than other blades and therefore the amount of mass that falls off of them is going to change dramatically the numbers that got tossed around were about uh, 50 grams per blade per year which is about a tenth of a pound uh, per blade per year so each wind turbine roughly is going to drop about a third of a pound of debris into the into the water that seems ballpark right to me it could be say it's say it's just a pound uh but okay fine you know does what is the consequence of that? And one of the, I think, points of confusion here is uh, they were talking, the, the discussion was about BPA, bisphenol A, which is a component used in epoxy systems. And there's a health risk for humans uh, that it can ha cause, um, there's a concern about birth defects. That's the big concern. So uh, a lot of, but a lot of the debris actually coming off wind turbines is not, Epoxy. It's not bisphenol A loaded stuff. It's it's typically paint that's coming off, which is not epoxy, and so the toxicity you know goes way way down. I think. Plus, I think there's just a question of 
it's like one drop in the ocean. How much can that really affect anything? And I, that's that's realistically, that's probably what the answer is. Is like I'm dropping a third of a pound of stuff into the, this vast ocean. Does it even register anywhere? Probably not. No, um, but it is a concern. And, and as as we start into some more of these uh, ecologically sensitive areas with wind, do we have to think about some of the other consequences? Uh, you know, if you drop hydraulic fluid in the ocean, which these turbines will at some point, oil, uh, there's a variety of chemicals and pieces that make up a wind turbine. It wouldn't be surprising if uh, some of them hit the water. And does it really matter? And is there limits on it? Are we watching it? Are we trying to minimize it? I think the answer to that is all yes. We're trying to minimize all of it. But I, you know, is it going to stop a project? My my feeling is no, because the environmental impact is going to, at least conceptually, it's going to be very, very small. And Rosemary, do you see that through the same lens as what I'm looking through from an engineering standpoint? Yeah, I think um, the article that I read, there was a, a huge disagreement about the amount of um, plastics that were going to go in the ocean. So the figure that you mentioned was the one that came from somebody associated with the, you know, the engineering of the wind turbines. And then the environmental group that's opposing the project guessed, I think, 65 kilos or, you know, right. many, many kilos per yeah. year from each blade. And um, I think in the ruling, they just, um, it was ruled that that was ridiculous, which, I mean, it, it obviously is ridiculous because if you lost that much material off your blade, then y your blade would be non-functional. So um, the, <laughs> the manufacturer, the customer, everyone has every incentive to make sure that there isn't that much material loss. Um, it's just, yeah, it's not possible. And in fact, even, you know, the different materials, yes, yeah, some paint um, would be expected to be lost, but if you're losing epoxy, then you're also losing some of your blade structure. So again, that can only progress a very limited amount before there is much bigger problems for the, the owner of the wind turbine than, you know, some amount of, of BPA in the ocean. So I think that there is already the right incentive for the, the operator and the manufacturer to ensure that this problem isn't any bigger than what they say it is. So, um, yeah, I think that uh, I, I don't think it's such such a big deal. Uh, I, I think, I mean, it's just like any other <laughs> issue. You've got to minimize the environmental impact, but anywhere that humans are, there's an impact on the environment. And, um, yeah, these number of grams per wind turbine per year is going to be small compared to, you know, anybody that is, you know, traveling through the area on boats constantly or, right. you know, doing stuff on the shore or, um yeah. Rubbish flowing into the ocean through rivers, you know, I think all of those uh, bad impacts that need to be minimized and kind of taken as a whole. Yeah, the the discrepancy is, like you said, it's huge. And it wasn't just disputed by the uh, by the manufacturer, but also by uh, data from a university and from Norwea. So um, and like you said, if they're shedding 62 kilograms per year per turbine, you know, that's, you know, that's 600 that's 1200 kilos over the course of the lifetime of it. Like that makes no sense. Like it's you said, it would just be a it's little a eroded mass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, interesting story. Yeah. The microplastic stuff. I mean, it, it could be with all these things. I mean, how much atmospheric rubber from tires of cars is in the air? I mean, it's no, sure. It's a lot. And obviously we didn't know certain things back in the day, like um, CFCs. 
we punched a huge a huge hole in the ozone layer. Oh, in whoops, our guys. ozone layer. Sorry about it's that. Austin, Sorry about that. It's, it's yeah. us in Australia that's suffering for that. It's me getting sunburnt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, Rosemary. But um, so this could be one of those things. Obviously, it's not good for humans. But like you said, it's a, probably a pretty small contributor, which is, again, one of those. You know, what's killing the world the most, Rosemary, the suburbs, people in the suburbs. <laughs> I'm wagging my finger at all of you. If you all just moved to the city and you didn't drive your cars around, we wouldn't have any of these problems. There, I said it first. You heard it here first, folks. Cities are saving the world. Mm. But anyway, we'll keep we'll keep an eye out on more microplastic stuff in the future. Um, let's shift to recycling. We talked about some of these things in the past. Uh, there's a new company in Warsaw, uh, giving some new life to wind turbine blades. Obviously this is not going to solve the, the gigantic quantity of blades that will be coming offline, but I guess every little bit gets reused, whether it's to be made into a cool park bench or seating or something else. It's pretty interesting. Alan, I mean, do you, do you think more firms are going to start popping up to just sort of take this stuff or does this stuff seem... I, it just doesn't seem to me like, even though some of these are really beautiful, it doesn't seem like they're going to be in mass quantity. Like, could you see yeah. a couple of turbine things in every public park? I think you could, you could, but it doesn't seem like they seem pretty one-off, right? Yeah, but there's many firms that are businesses that are doing this. Uh, I, I think I recently saw one, I think it was in Ireland or in the UK, that was doing the, exactly the same thing. They were reclaiming sections of wind turbine blades to make them into structures. Uh, the one I remember was like a podium or a lectern. Well, that's an interesting idea because it's already sort of pretty close to that shape. <laughs> and so they just adapted it over. So we are reclaiming some wind turbine blades for architectural purposes and even structural purposes, which is like a, a pedestrian crossing bridge and uh, the, the things that that structure will totally handle. It's just one of many ways we're going to learn to recycle, reuse wind turbine blades. And as more opportunity arises, as there's more businesses trying different things, we're going to find that niche, whether it be just recycling in terms of make it into cement or make it into uh, park benches. I, I think there's a place for them rather than burying them in the ground. Well, are they big enough? I mean, Rosemary, you're a, a big out, outdoorsy person. Um, could we make like a whole campsite of structures? Could you have like 30 little, you know, two bedroom things made at a campsite where you can just mean, repurpose them that way? Of course you could. And in, in Denmark, they actually, their um, campsites, I guess because it rains so much, but the camp areas there are usually like some sort of wooden structure with, um, you know, mm. like one open side and then the rest of it's like a kind of like a, a box that you, you kind of slot into. You bring your, bring your sleeping bag <laughs> and you, you don't really need a, need a tent. So that could easily be remade, made out of pieces of wind turbines. But I think that, um, like, I don't want to look at, I don't want every single piece of outdoor furniture, every single bike shelter, every single bridge to just look like a wind it's turbine. It's all wind turbines. Blade. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's not what I, I hope for for the future, but I don't think it's going to be like that. I do think we'll see a lot more of, of this reuse because it's such a valuable, um, material, you know, like it's, it is a high, a high performance material. It's reached the end of, um, of its lifetime for a wind turbine blade application, which is so demanding, but you know, that's basically the most demanding thing you could do with a material. You can make nearly anything out of it and the, afterwards and the structural properties will be just fine. Um, but I think it's going to rely on, there needs to be like another evolution as much as the designs in that article, like they're, they're actually mostly pretty nice to look at. So, um, I, I thought they were good. But I think it's going to 
be more a matter of working with like modern design and architectural techniques. There's a lot of things they can do now to like, if you look, for example, at how they're using natural materials more in design, um, using, you know, like curved pieces of wood and stuff. And there's a lot of, um, good computer software now where you can scan, scan the exact shape of something and then, um, you know, put that into a computer model. So you might be slicing up into smaller, smaller pieces. So you've got some curves, but it's not, you know, when you arrange them to form a, a framework or, or something, it doesn't just scream wind turbine blade at you. And, um, <laughs> I, I can imagine, you know, in a few years, we'll get to the point where we see things reused in a way that it's just a nice, a nice material. So I, I think, I think we're getting closer. Well, something that could be like, for example, like hardwood flooring, you'd think there'd be some way to, you know, sand down one side of a blade, you know, put it through a router or something where it's flat, start cutting it up with a CNC machine into essentially composite flooring. I don't know if fiberglass is like the healthiest thing to have in your house. I have no (laughs) idea. I mean, you guys would know more than I would, but um, things like that seem like they could have good uses where you can maybe put cheap, but really durable flooring and like, I don't know, all sorts of different applications, right? Maybe not in like high-end homes, but maybe in like lower-end homes or, um, I don't know, common areas or something or baseboards, for example, or, you know, molding for your house. So maybe it'll get there. We'll see. Uh, well, speaking of which, getting these blades off the uh, the turbines themselves is an interesting challenge. And there's an interesting story from North Dakota where they're talking about dismantling a wind farm. And I guess one of the, le- the Alan, is this the, the way they're, proposing to do it is this the final way they are going to do it which is uh they're going to take a crane mount on a truck to remove the blades and then at each tower they're going to put it a cable up top they're going to remove some of the gussets the bottom right and then they're just going to have a bulldozer sort of back up pull it over from a long way away i'm sure and just pull it over like a tree is that is that the final way they're going to do this which is very odd because i haven't seen that technique technique used before what i've seen if you check youtube is uh sort of a uh explosive demolition controlled explosives where they're 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 cutting the the base of the turbine and slicing it and then the whole turbine comes over blades the cell everything rolls over there's pictures of that happening in, in New Mexico and West Texas uh, what i remember from the recent uh, YouTube videos. So I thought North Dakota would be doing the same thing, but they are very concerned about reclaiming the land in which the wind turbine falls onto and in relation to crops and uh, falling into onto roads, things of that sort. So they really want to control where the the demolition takes place at. But I would I would assume it's going to cost you a pretty good penny to take the blades off, set them down because of the crane expense, and then to pull the top over would be would be expensive. But so it's it's unique. I would I was not expecting North Dakota to have those kind of constraints. It's it's different. Well, and this seems like if you gave uh, three high school boys with a pickup truck and you said, hey, go take that wind farm down. This is exactly how they would do it. Yeah, um, they would. Yeah. But it seems they said they're going this route because it's going to save them. Uh, what is it? Six million dollars. Yeah, it's a lot of money. So I don't know. Rose, Rosemary, what do you know about dismantling wind farms? I don't know a lot and I haven't even taken the time to look it up on YouTube, but now I feel like I have to afterwards to, <laughs> to see what they're, what they're doing. But I think that the whole point is if you can say you're going to, um, decommission your wind farm in this cheaper way, then you need to set aside less, less money, um, to do that. And so it's, you know, a financial incentive for the, um, the developer to, 
find the the cheapest way and i guess that there's some contention about like you won't actually know how much it costs to decommission until you actually do and when you're starting a wind farm that's you know like 20 30 years in the future so um it it, it is one of those perennial topics where people argue about whether enough money has been set aside for decommissioning and it's a, a question i get asked about so much on my my youtube channel um and you know similar similar question for nuclear especially that a lot of people think that um the the money set aside to decommission nuclear power plants that are about to retire is not nearly enough um problems with yeah coal coal power plants that are you know going going bankrupt and uh you know it depends on how you the government has regulated that money has to be set aside whether or not a bankrupt company still has the resources to decommission safely so uh, i mean i think in if you put it in the scale of all the different ways that you can generate um electricity then wind probably has one of the smallest uh decommissioning problems or decommissioning kind of time bombs out of all of the um the options but it's definitely a, a consideration and it's something that people people worry about like the community is worried about what's going to happen at the end of life well you would think that north or north dakota would take some state pride and maybe see if their football team could pull this down you just like make a <laughs> like a little sled you know and just have the players very far away the long chain but then you'd imagine 20 linemen could probably pull that thing down. I think so. Okay, Alan. so here's, here's yeah. a bet for you that uh, our rugby team will, <laughs> will take it down better than any North American football team because that is not a tough sport. See. I'm sorry. No, they've got helmets on. They've got shoulder pads. Uh, I mean, look at look at the difference between a rugby tackle and a <laughs> the difference in yeah, si- no. the, di- the difference in size between an NFL linebacker and a rugby player is huge not to mention these linemen are 300 plus pounds how many rugby players could yeah, tackle but a rugby them. player could no, run. Not That's many. the difference. He's better. <laughs> You've yeah. actually got to move. Yeah, an NFL linebacker, <laughs> an average NFL linebacker is significantly bigger, significantly yeah. bigger than the average rugby it's true. player. Very can they much move? Very can they bigger. run? Oh, yeah. the, the linebackers, yeah. they can move so fast. They're one of the, <laughs> they have the highest vertical jump of all Olympic athletes next to Olympic uh, weightlifters. So I'm taking that bet. No, I don't believe it. <laughs> if they're so heavy. That's true. Yeah. NFL linebacker. This is his strength to weight ratio. Crazy strong, yeah. So we can we can if anyone's out there, if you want to you want to coordinate the, you know, the Aussies versus you know the uh, I don't know Alan, who we got here, the New England New England Patriots. The Patriots, yeah. Um, my money's on the Patriots. Yeah, I'll take that. Take less of them. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is good. We got a wager under the out, out, of, out of the way here. Um, so anyway, pretty interesting. I want YouTube footage of this. If anyone's listening, please film this go out to north dakota and film this for us rosemary you should be on this team by the way this should be on your channel um so moving on in virginia one of their offshore farms not a floating one um they've done some uh drone footage of these sort of like lattice work structures that are you know beneath these wind turbines and they found like a really thriving ecosystem alan does this surprise you that marine life i mean it seems like if you do anything like if you get, we know if you sink boats in the in the water and a lot of times boats are decommissioned by being sunk right um you Form sort of like a natural reef, and it seems like that's what's happening here off the coast of Virginia. Yeah, it, I, I think that's to be expected. Anytime you drop any uh, structural piece in the ocean, it seems to make it into a reef pretty quickly, where all the little fish come and all the all the uh, plant life grabs hold of it and uh, makes it into a vibrant community of some sort. And uh, these wind turbines off the coast of Virginia haven't been there all that long. There's only two of them, so they it's, it's part of a demonstrator 
process for Dominion Energy is to to go out there and put these turbines out because they're going to be putting a lot more turbines out in the, in the water in the next couple of years. And so they're trying to get some data on what happens. And I think from the engineering perspective, that makes a ton of sense to me. Like, let's see what's happening. Uh, and if we need to make adjustments to the turbines themselves, uh, it's Dan, you're right, because the, those bases that get driven into the, the seafloor, they're not closed cylinders. There's actually holes in them to let the tide come in and out and the, and the waves come in and out. So the, the, the fish actually crawl up inside, inside the turbine towers, which is really interesting because uh, I didn't realize that was the thing. But it's it creates more sea life, essentially. And um, the question in my mind is: it is it beneficial to the wind turbine, or is it or is it going to be a problem later on because all that sea life is around? And that's what I don't think we know a lot about yet. Uh, and which, and I think the other piece is what happens on the environmental side because there's a lot of concern about habitats for native species in these areas, in these offshore areas that we don't know a lot about. And if we start driving big pilings into the ground, do we upset that ecostructure or is it temporary? If it is upset, is it temporary or is it long-term or do, or do we just have this uh, basically another place for fish to grow? Don't know, but at least we're doing it in the right manner, in my opinion. We're doing it slow. We're doing, actually having scientists go out and take a look. And a lot of these offshore wind sites and developers actually have a person on their staff who's just looking at the fisheries, uh, which I wouldn't have expected. But uh, it makes a total sense once you hear it. Like The, the local fisheries are concerned about it. So not, why not have an expert document what's happening? And Rosemary, I... I I'm surprised I haven't seen a lot of activity like this over on the European side, but it's a big issue here in the United States. Is is it a bigger issue than Europe? We just haven't seen it? Um, I haven't heard heard about it, um, so potentially not. But, I mean, to me, it's very obvious that you put a structure in the ocean and it's good for good for fish, good for coral reefs or whatever, because like you said, they, they purposely sink boats to create uh, environments like that. Um, so uh, we already knew what happens, you know, around oil rigs or, or whatever once they're decommissioned. So, I mean, why would it be any different because it's there for a wind turbine instead of um, for, you know, some other purpose? So maybe that's the reason why we haven't seen a lot about it. I mean, I'd be highly surprised if no one has taken a look at what's going on around a, a offshore wind foundation in Europe somewhere because they've had them since, I mean, the first ones were in the 90s. So, you know, they've had <laughs> plenty of times for for things to grow grow on there people obviously there's people who like to dive and snorkel um in those countries i'm sure it's well known but um maybe it's precisely because it's uh brand new now in north america that people are you know taking a look at it with with fresh eyes and want to know about you know every every possible consequence whereas it's maybe more normal in in europe by now all right, moving on, but staying with uh, offshore. So our last topic for today is is the Vineyard Wind Farm, um, which has been embattled recently. And of course, uh, more so now, there's a new lawsuit filed uh, in conjunction with a Texas group that is pretty hostile towards wind energy. And they're basically claiming that a lot of the uh, diligence around um, and the environmental studies and the, the right whale specifically just wasn't done thoroughly enough. So um, new lawsuit files filed claims that 
they did not provide BOEM with uh, alternative lease sites and conne- connection with endangered species, specifically the right whales. Uh, they also assert that they did not properly establish an environmental baseline, which has another number of downstream effects. Um, they said that there's been inadequate uh, incidental take statements that failed uh, to account for all effects to endangered species, including the right whales, and that they failed to reinitiate cons- consultation after getting new data uh, when they altered their project to include Halliadex, which were significantly larger turbines than originally uh, proposed. So, Alan, obviously, we've recently learned uh, from one of our upcoming guests that when these lawsuits uh, reach the court, you know, the judge is more or less sifting through to figure out was diligence done properly like the court is not the expert on this um the experts are the expert but the judge is going to intervene and say yes were all these channels um properly attended to was everything done by the book was everything done properly were all things considered in the way that a reasonable um i don't know the exact language here you know was this all done well um and so the question is you seem like uh, there's so many smart attorneys on this you you wonder that this many claims would have really fallen short, or is this just another piece of litigation that maybe is aimed just to sort of slow this down? Well, that's a good question. And as we, in this next podcast is going to come out, we're going to talk a lot more about leases and auctions. There's a lot of review that that happens before the sale or lease of the uh, of the plot of ocean takes place. A lot of environmental review, a lot of discussion within the community, nationally, locally. Uh, so by the time they get like Vineyard Wind gets to this point, it'd be hard pressed to think that they skipped over something as obvious as whales, which is a huge industry along the coastline there, tourist industry along the coastline. And so that one doesn't feel right to me in, in terms of everybody just look the other way. I, I doubt that is the case here right and but in in the way that american society is structured you have a right to bring a lawsuit and to and to make your claims in in a hearing and let your voice be heard okay uh so i'd rather have that and get it out in the open and everybody figure out what happened and get to a conclusion than the constant squabbling that appears to go on and there's never ever a resolution here the resolution is the important part because either Vineyard Wind is going to put turbines in or they're not. The, what is damaging to Vineyard Wind is a five-year lawsuit and they're continuing to pay money out for the lease and the rent and everything else and, and you get no production of electricity. It, that's that's just going to set back offshore wind a long time in the States. And Rosemary, I, I don't think the Australian – uh, system is set up like the United States, where it seems like if anybody has an issue, they run right to court and try to create injunctions and stop things. But it seems like there's just in the different parts of Europe, there's a little more um, environmental oversight way up front. So these type of issues don't come to this sort of do, do clash in the courtroom. Am I right about that? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I did. I don't think it's so different in Australia and usually when I'm paying attention to these kinds of environmental lawsuits, it's because, you know, they want to do this a gigantic new coal mine or they want to dredge the Great Barrier Reef so that they can export that coal and, you know, and so I, um, we have we have 
lots of environmental assessments and uh, approval processes that need to happen in Australia. And I'm often not feeling like they've really done a very good job, that it's more about whether the politician just likes the idea of the project, has an ideological, you know, commitment to that type of energy or got a donation from, <laughs> from one of the developers. That's how it feels to me as a, just a, you know, concerned citizen in those cases. So yeah, I don't, I don't see that it's so different. Of course, America's always more litigious than <laughs> basically <laughs> everywhere else. Um, so, so there's that, but it seems to me like part of the problem is just that this is the, you're still very early early in your journey towards offshore wind in the US and I mean further ahead than Australia is currently but um I don't think that you could have this same lawsuit for every offshore wind farm where there were whales in the area I feel like for once and for all they're going to say okay yes we know there's whales in the area and we've ruled that they're not going to be affected by this it'll be very hard you know once there's been that ruling for um the same kind of lawsuit to you know make any progress on another wind farm where there's whales in the area i i mean surely um and i would hope that this could be settled by taking a look at some european offshore wind farms where there were whales in the area and having a look to see if they were really that bothered by it um because my instinct would be that you know whales have have coped with a, a lot of human impacts in the the ocean over the over the years, um, you know, ships and uh, and any kind of um, offshore oil and gas infrastructure. You know, um, you don't want to be putting a lot of obstacles in their way. But then again, I feel like a, a whale can swim around <laughs> swim around a turbine. I feel like that's that's not such a big deal. It also seems like there's a little bit of conflicting stuff in here. It's like on the one hand, oh, you know, this is bad because it's going to be bad for fisheries. And on the other hand, it's going to be bad for fish. And I feel like you can't be both bad for, for fish, fisheries and for, for fish. You know, like if you stop people fishing, then isn't that good for fish? That's, that's what I would expect. Not that I think, I don't think whales are fish. I just want to, I just want to add that. I know whales Definitely aren't not. fish, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. If anything, for like, protecting some of the water from heavy commercial fishing is got to be obviously good for fish, right? Because we're decimating the population of anything that we can eat here in the U.S. Um, so, yeah, it can't be bad long term, but... Yeah, and bigger animals eat the fish, and so you would mm -hmm. think that it, it, it could just as easily or probably more likely have a beneficial impact on keeping everything a bit more natural. Yeah, well, I just feel like in Australia... You guys just know, you know, with that huge hole in the ozone layer, you don't have as much time to waste in court. You know, you got to get out there and live your life before the complete lack of protection from the sun does you all in. So maybe that's where our our systems of uh, our legal systems differ. But yeah, so we'll see. I mean, Alan, do you think this is going to get wrapped up soon or do you think when you're winning, it's going to continue to be um, bombarded with more lawsuits? It seems like this lawsuit's not going to go very far because if, as long as BOEM and all the environmental impacts were done ahead of time, this should be – If they did their job, yeah. yeah. It should go through mm -hmm. the, the legal system and get reviewed and say, no, everybody's done their job and it's okay. We're not, not to say we're not going to monitor it and there's a lot more – because, you know, remember that it's not just the lease that happens. Before anything can get installed, there's another environmental review, which is what's happening now and why this issue is coming up is there's, there's another – stoppage point where it needs to collect their thoughts, make sure the next stage is going to be okay. So there are built-in pauses into the system. This is one of them, but I think the previous five, 10 years worth of work, and Rosemary's right. If they have data from Europe also, uh, that's going to bolster their case to say, I think it's going to be okay and we're going to move on. So good. It needs that level of review. It definitely needs review. 
All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Uptime Win Energy Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or if you watch us here on YouTube. Uh, be sure to share the show with a friend. Leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. And we will see you here next week on Uptime. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.